Unpolished NBA audience, today I want to welcome Melinda Byerly. Hello, Melinda. Good morning, Monique. I have been following you on Twitter for quite some time, and you have a very interesting, intriguing, <laughs> informative, passionate feed. I really want to go into your career path because you've done a lot. So tell me a little bit about your education first, though. Well, I am the first uh, person on both sides of my family to go to college. So that was not necessarily, you know, the default path when I was growing up in the 80s in the in the Midwest. And my my stepfather was an engineer. Well, not an engineer per se. He was a, a tradesman and he worked on the robots at the Chrysler plant. And so when computers came out, he knew that was going to be a thing of the future and made sure that I learned how to type because he believed that that was how we would interact with computers in the future. And and so he built a computer with me in the garage when I was 10. Wow. And I started, you know, teaching myself how to program because I was a curious kid and I have ADHD. I've had it since I was a child. And like a lot of us neurodiverse folks, you know, computers are very fascinating. So I was very curious about it, but I didn't go there the straight route. I actually studied theater. There weren't jobs in technology that I thought about doing when I was that age. We didn't have that type of representation. Computers were in huge rooms. It was a very different situation. And so I was working in theater for a while and even went to grad school for a couple of years before I went to business school. I basically made a pivot. I realized that business wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't all men in the gray flannel suits that there was a lot of opportunity to be made. And of course, as a kid from a you know more modest means, I, I, liked, I wanted to make some money. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was fortunate enough to be accepted at Cornell to the Johnson School of Management. And when I graduated, it was right after 9-11. So it was not a, a good time to be looking for a job yeah, with student yeah. debt. Yeah. Uh, and I spent a year, I came up to Silicon Valley after 9-11. I had lived in New York for a while before then, and I wanted to live somewhere different. And it was pretty weird and strange, almost deserted place back then in 2002. And I was unemployed for the better part of a year until I finally got a job at eBay. And then the rest was history. So now that was how I made the transition in. It was not simple. It was not easy. It was a lot of hard. I think I tell people, and it's the truth, there was a period of time, I, even after I got my MBA, where I was eating peanut butter and bagels and, and I had lawn furniture because I couldn't afford to bring everything out here from the East Coast. So I came out with very little and just built it up one step at a time. Wow, that's fascinating. I notice now in tech, they're very much focused on, you know, who's an engineer, who has computer science degree, who's a software engineer. But coming from theater, that would be really hard to even get in the door these days unless you know somebody. I want to tell you a story. I want okay. I, I hate to correct my host. I generally don't like to argue with Please my host's home. Please do it. Please. <laughs> so... When I, uh, I told you I was unemployed for the better part of a year, and I had a job offer at a really great company in LA. They are not, we're not a tech company. My mentor at Cornell was incredibly helpful at getting me that opportunity. So I, I can't say that there is real power in sort of the networks that come with this education. And, and I was ready to go. I mean, I needed a job, right? And, yeah. and then eBay called. And this was back in 2002 when they were the Facebook. I know it's hard for people right. to, if you weren't here, they were like oh, at the very apex, right? Mm -hmm. like it was a ghost town here and eBay was one of the companies that was making money hand over fist. Yeah. And I said to this employer, I said, could you please give me a chance to go interview here? If they turn me down, I promise you I will accept your offer. And they said, and I said, maybe they thought I wouldn't get the job either, but they said, okay. And I, and that helped a lot because I could say to eBay, look, I have this offer on the table after being unemployed. And, right. But the fact is, this is the truth. There was a woman who had accepted the job before, before, I, before it was offered to me, and she had reneged on the offer. And as anybody who's worked in tech knows, if you don't fill a job, the companies have a way of taking that headcount away. They were in a hustle to hire. Now, at the time, I mean, eBay, and I don't know if it's still this way, was very focused on where you went to school. I mean, the fact that I went to Cornell was that was my in even and, without having the technical background well i think cared about I, the I, did have, I had the degree in finance and i did well in the interviews that's a whole story okay. i really i know how to sell myself in interviews that's a, probably another sort of you know discussion we could have but and there were a lot of guys from the midwest there okay. a lot of that so there was some of that sort of camaraderie everybody had gone to top schools and the reason i tell you this story is that on day one my manager who is now pretty high up in Silicon Valley, who had gone to Harvard Business School, 
said to me that he didn't want me to feel bad about my lack of pedigree. What? Oh, yeah, this is my very first day. I mean, I'm fresh out of MBA school. I'm a little insecure probably because I'm a theater. I know I'm a theater major, right? I'm not a, I mean, I've worked with computers my whole life. You got to remember too, I started programming at 10. I was not unafraid of technology and, and data and, and all those sorts of things. I was always a nerd about it. And he said, you know, don't, I don't want you to feel bad about your lack of pedigree. You, at the time, Cornell was one of the top 10 schools in the country. I think it still is. And because I was considered the diversity hire, at, because I had gone to Cornell instead of Harvard or Stanford or Wharton. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my It was my literally goodness. the first Johnson MBA hired at eBay. Literally. The first person not from any of those. Berkeley. It was Berkeley, Stanford, Harvard, and Wharton. Okay. That so sounds in terms like of some elitist, eliticism. That's what it sounds like. You think? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you think? I mean, every, and also, by the way, most of those people had also worked for McKinsey, Goldman Sachs. Bain, BCG, you get the idea. This, these are all like elite, you know, because Meg Whitman had come from that world. She was Harvard Business School, McKinsey. And so a lot of that, a lot of those folks and brand, there were brand folks too, because she'd also worked at Procter & Gamble. So there were people with that type of pedigree. My little neon was like shivering in the parking lot next to all of the... Oh, I remember neon. <laughs> <laughs> next to all the BMWs. It was like, don't leave me. So it was, you know kind of, you know, eye-opening and, and and an incredible experience, but it was, I was considered the diversity hire, which is astonishing, yeah. which is an astonishing take. Mm. Well, Cornell is one of the Ivy League schools. <laughs> this is the thing. And also, too, I think, I mean, if we're going to talk about MBA, because I know yours is an unpolished MBA, so you have a mix of people with a degree and, and not, I think. As Most you don't. Don't. You are going, and I've seen, you know, for example, if you want to work in the film business, you would be smart to go to USC. Because the whole film industry is populated people who graduated from the business school at USC. That's not an Ivy League school, but it's where film people go to school. Right. So I think, you know, if you, it's not about in that sense where it is about where you go, but it's, it's making sure that where you go is aligned with where you kind of want to be in the long run. Right. Right. If I'd known I was going to end up on the West Coast, I don't know that I would have gone to Cornell. I thought I was going to stay in the East Coast my whole life, but, you know, mm -hmm. what do you know? Mm -hmm. if, life isn't like that. But I yes, know. to the power of brand, I mean, the, the Cornell MBA got me the interview, if that makes any sense. But then you have to sell yourself and you have to do the job. It, it only gets you so far. And one of the best marketers I know in the Valley never went to business school. So I don't think it confers any special advantage. If it was only able to help me as a theater person make that transition, there's no way I ever would have gotten an interview with just a theater degree. You just affirmed everything that I was thinking. You said it much better than I could have ever because that was definitely your situation. One of the most famous people, I would say, in the tech world even now and will go down in history is a Stanford professor and a UC Berkeley professor and does not have a college degree himself. He is definitely a force. I know his information and him personally, I've met him and engaged with him. He's been on the Unpolished MBA. He is incredible. But that goes to show you that, you know, having an MBA or whatever education it is, it doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. For mm -hmm. anyone. And he is a great example of how you can still have a major impact on the world without having those things. Yep. I mean, I come from no, nobody in my family has a college degree. Mm -hmm. So you can't convince me that it conferred any kind of like character or, or any special anything. It's it is an education. It, it has benefits. It has privileges without a doubt. But it does not change you as a person. Agree. I So I want to go from. Okay, eBay call. <laughs> I'm like, how? Wait a minute. How eBay call? Did you know someone in there? Oh. No, actually, I, I make this joke. I was the, probably the only person on Monster.com to get a job in 2002 or 2003. The economy was so dead. Yeah, I believe it was just straight up. I was just throwing stuff at the wall. And then when I got the interview, I ran out to the bookstore because the internet wasn't that as robust as it was today. There was a book that just been published called The Perfect Store about. The history of eBay, and I stayed up all night reading it so that I could take things from it into the interview. I mean, those those people who know how to hustle know know what that means, know what that's like. You've got an opportunity in front of you. I was driving from my apartment in the city to San Jose. They were they're still there on the corner of Hamilton and Bascom, in my little ninety Plymouth Neon, <laughs> and listening to Eminem's, you know, "Lose Yourself." 
because to me, this was the moment. This was every from all the generations. My grandfather was a functionally illiterate farmer. It was like, this is my chance. This is my opportunity. And so, you know, fortunately, it worked out for me. It's just as likely that it wouldn't have. And so I try to remain sort of very aware of how lucky I've been. Yeah. I always say this. We always discount genetics. (laughs) You know, and even when it comes to having neurodiverse characteristics, I call them being a blessing as well, because it makes you uniquely qualified and impactful in certain ways that maybe you don't value because it's you, but Mm. other people around you definitely see it. So, so you, you have an incredible history starting there. How long did you stay at eBay and what did you do? I was there. I was there for two and a half years. I was one of the first people from eBay to go to PayPal after the acquisition. So did you work with Elon? No, he had just left. Basically, they when they sold to eBay, they left. But Dave McClure, I think Dave McClure had just left. But call it their next group of people were still there. So I know the people who know the people. If that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Um, you're still out there, right? I am. I've been here for over twenty years now. So once you moved on or decided to move on from eBay, where is that bridge from getting your start in the tech world to eventually becoming an entrepreneur yourself? Well, you know, years ago, I, when I was in business school, I took a class on venture capital and I just thought entrepreneurship was so far away. I didn't, I mean, you've heard me talk about this on Twitter. How I know we are not a meritocracy is that I'm a poor kid. There's no safety net to back me up out here. Yeah. If I didn't save money, if I didn't take care of myself, there's, you know, it would be going back home to Illinois and moving in with mom and neither of us wants that. (laughs) And so, you know, that was not an opportunity in front of me, frankly, because I had carried student debt. And so I had to work, but I wanted to, I had been in a big company and there were lots of opportunities, including Google. There's, I have a bunch of stories. I interviewed a lot of big companies in the Valley after. This is another lesson, right? If you can get your, your foot in to one great company, you get opportunities that come your way. It's kind of like business school, right? It opens the door. It doesn't do the job for you, but it opens the door. Yeah, it's just that brand. So that's why you even see on LinkedIn, people will say ex-Googler or yeah. you know, ex-Facebook. And it's just like, oh, that person is. So I have my issues with both, even with touting a specific school, because having, you know, you and I come from similar background. Yours is probably better than mine. As far as backgrounds, but, you know, not coming from uh, any kind of wealth, being, you know, first go to college, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it is one of those things where I would bust my tail. And I knew people who would cheat and make things list or who, you know, who had friends who went to the school and gave them the old test or they they had a network. They they knew somebody because their parents you know, they would go off to Martha's Vineyard in the, in the summertime. So, oh, yeah, you see that you know what I mean? school for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not even just business school. And for me, undergrad, because I'm, you know, I did engineering undergrad at a private school, you know. And so all of those kids had money. I, I didn't have any money. So I'm just saying is they weren't always the brightest just because <laughs> they went to the, the, you know, this great school or, or their parents had money or they had great grades. Their grades wasn't always an indication of work that they did, but no one knew. Absolutely. So that part with, and I know folks who have came from brand name companies, like big ones, major ones, and they were a lump on a log. The reason they were there was because someone knew someone. And then the reason they got to say it stay, even though they weren't really that great of a performer was because somebody knew somebody. And I see that in politics, too. I've also worked in that world. So, again, I'm always still skeptical when someone leads with the brand versus authentically who they are. I'm always skeptical. Yeah, your job shouldn't define you. Just look at what we've look at what we've just seen with all the layoffs in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. I mean, the people who whose identity was wrapped around being a Googler just had their identity ripped away. Totally. Why would you give anybody that that power over you? Plus, having gotten here during the bust, right, having been unemployed for a year during the bust, it's made anybody who's went through that experience. A lot of us are Gen Xers, I think, from just from an age perspective. That's why a lot of us are very cautious about aligning our identity with the company and are very skeptical about uh. You know, I never, for example, in my own company, I never referred to my my team as my family. 
because it's not never exactly yes we can have strong bonds with each other we can care about each other but we are not family Mm -hmm. and and this is a different relationship and so i do i do worry i just asked tom peters on my own podcast i said how do you reconcile this i said i I'm getting cynical to the place where I think, you know, a mission statement's whole purpose is to manipulate people into working longer hours. Melinda, this is why I follow you on Twitter. Oh, my gosh. I swear you're in my head and you say what I'm thinking. (laughs) Well, that's a compliment to both, I think. So good. Maybe to other people, it scares them. We may scare other people, but I'm, I'm with you. So what did what did Tom Peters say on your episode on your podcast? You know he, well, one I love that he said that you know he, as far as he was concerned, he spent his whole life right working with big companies. I mean, he was an yeah. advisor to Steve Jobs. A lot of young people don't know who he is. You should go find out who he is. He's a really amazing guy. Yeah, and he said, you know, he as far as he's concerned, he said you can dump the Fortune 500 in the river. Right. He said, you know, the real interest and interesting things are happening in small companies. And he has been saying this his whole career. Put people first. Be a good person. Treat people. It's always about people. Mm-hmm. The first book he wrote with his writing partner in search of excellence was all about those companies did well because of the of how they developed systems that reinforced people. That's right. Yeah. And so it's about people first. And it's, you know, there's a, we could go on for hours and this is a short podcast. but. There is always a struggle between kind of these three pillars in tech, the money, the technology, and the people. Yes. And there is no balance. Mm. Do you see one ever coming? Well, it's interesting. I think, and I don't think I'm being nostalgic. This is my lived experience, and I'm one person, sample size one. So my lived experience is that you know, and it could be, I mean, maybe it is nostalgia. I don't know. I'm second guessing myself. But 20 years ago when I was young, it was it was different in this way. It was elitist, like we just described in Insular. There was an understanding that employees should benefit from the work. We got straight up stock options. We didn't get RSUs. There wasn't participating preferred lick prefs and things that undermined uh, you know, if you if you work for a company and this and the shares are handed out with liquidity preference to the VCs, they get like double before you get anything. That's right. And that and all that stuff evolved in the last twenty years. And it's interesting. I again, I'm not I'm not trying to pitch my own podcast, but just some of the folks that I've had on. They should um, follow you. <laughs> well, because I believe the past is prologue. How did we get here? We can't understand how we got. You know where we are until we understand how we got here. And a lot of it's happened in the last twenty years. Yeah. I mean, I just happened to have the luck to be here while it was going on. And we transitioned from a place that was largely run by business people, which had its problems, mm-hmm. to a place that is now run by technology people, which I don't think is any better. I think it's equally worse. And, In what ways? Well, at least when you make a business decision, all of the boats should rise. When you make a technology decision, you dehumanize people. Oh. And it's very, I mean, you think business is dehumanizing. I mean, look at, look at what's coming. And there's net late capital has never wanted to pay labor for what it's worth. And I've been warning engineers for years that they better figure this out because venture capital does not enjoy paying these large salaries to engineers. They're going to reward and nurture and grow any technology that will help them make more money, period. And very few of them, not all, there's still a number of great investors in the Valley who actually put people first, care about people and are betting on technologies that are going to make the world a better place. But it's 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 just been fascinating to watch all of these folks come in. When there's a lot of money to be made, they rush in. And then mm-hmm. when there's a bus, they all leave. And so it's been an interesting place to be here at both times, to be here when it was just people trying to make the world a better place and then watching all the money rush in. And yeah, It's fascinating because you have been in the middle of it all happening around you. You know, you, you work for one of the companies. So you have insight as well as to what's really happening and how that environment there is is transforming. And you you obviously have some insight into the future because you've already studied and been a part of the the past. Yeah, I think so too. I I don't think I don't think Facebook was an anomaly. I think it was an evolution. And it it grows out of the the past that that has happened. There are reasons why things are done the way they're done. And I often you know, we'll give talks at my alma mater out east. And I tell the folks in New York, you have an opportunity to do something different, to build Silicon Valley 2.0. Mm-hmm. 
we're not perfect out here. We didn't do everything right. In fact, we did a lot of things wrong. And anybody who's working outside of this environment has a chance to sort of take what we did well and leave the rest behind. And keep and the, I think the more competition Silicon Valley has with itself, with other geographic areas, the better life will be for all of us. I'm hoping tech will will see if they're able to figure out how to how to retain some of the things we know, mm-hmm. or if they're just going to continue to be youth obsessed. I uh, that's a whole again. Yeah, that's a podcast about that. That's another thing is when you mention youth obsessed. That is very true for the industry overall. We can even take it back to the workforce period. Ageism actually goes both ways, and it depends Mm -hmm. on the industry. Yep. You're too young. You're too old. And so I think we have to get over how people look. I'm so tired of the very surface. And I know we're humans. And that's the first thing that, uh, you know, visual is how we first form our opinions over people and things and how we're going to engage. But I really think we need to be more conscious in in how we make those decisions. One of the things I'm loving about the remote, sort of the way we're going to remote is how how that minimizes it. If I can tell a brief story, I did a, a, a tour of duty at Linden Lab, the creators of Second Life, arguably the first sort of successful virtual reality company. And they're still in existence. And, you know, they're at least a hundred million dollar company. They're not tiny. Mm-hmm. and we had a rule. There were no hybrid meetings. So either, and this was, God, how many years ago? I'm dating myself now. Probably, yeah, it was at least 10 years ago. And we had a rule that was no hybrid meetings. So either everybody had to be in the room or everybody had to be in Second Life. So I had already, we, we, I, I did so many meetings in Second Life. I had no idea where most of my colleagues were. They could have been in London. Some were all over the country. And sometimes they were downstairs. I was like, wow, you're in the, you're here? Like, Oh, wow, that's cool. And I and it was fascinating. I remember the day I was in somebody's office online and it was snowing in world and it was hot outside, but I felt myself getting cold. And I thought to myself, there's something here about this. And my avatar was a little pink bunny, which is why all the Lindens will call me pink. You'll hear sometimes you'll hear people call me pinky or pink. And that I got to choose my avatar. That was how I went into this world. I got to choose what I looked like. And because I was, I'm a woman, and and while I don't identify as non-binary, I de- definitely not gender non-conforming. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm tall, I'm broad-shouldered, I have short hair, I talk fast, and I, I'm assertive. You know, I don't present as traditionally female. And it was a joy for me to sort of pick out how I wanted to present to the world and be treated thusly, yeah, as tiny pig bunny, but as a you know as, as as a being, as a soul, rather than as whatever my outward characteristics were, as a person with ideas. And there is some power in that. It can be dehumanizing too. It has downsides and risks, but there's something there that I think holds the key for a lot of us. I really do hope that we get to a point in society where we just see people as people mm-hmm. and not try to categorize. And I get it that as humans, that's just what we naturally want to do because it makes us comfortable with. The, the circumstance or the situation, but we have to consider other people. I think the more we talk about it, we make a little bit more progress with a certain amount of the population. I don't think, you know, we've gotten mass adoption yet of that mindset, but we're making a little bit of progress. What do you think? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to say that, oh, sure, we've made progress, but I don't know. I mean, I think I think awareness is important. Like, for example, again, when I was talking to Tom Peters, he started to tell a football analogy and then he stopped. I said, Tom, it's all right. I know a lot about football. You're not going to offend me. He says, no, I'm really working on this. I, I don't want to exclude people. And I thought, here is an 80-year-old man, PhD from Stanford, practically invented the organizational behavior practice at McKinsey, still striving to make himself better, still striving to grow. And And I asked him once, I said, what gives you hope? It was right after the election, the 2016, the election. It's funny how those of us have I know, we, I know. Thought, and we know immediately we're talking about 2016. Yeah. Whatever side you were on, I asked, I asked Tom, I said, what gives you hope? And he told me a story about having been at Harvey Milk's funeral. I don't know if you know who Harvey Milk was. I or do, of course. Okay. So as you know, the, the gay activist and, yeah, and congressman mm-hmm. and the mayor, Diane yeah. Feinstein, right. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. He was yeah. at Harvey Milk's memorial service. 
And he came back to the McKinsey office and the, and the guys, and they were guys asking McKinsey, like, why are you crying, man? Like, you know, and he was in tears. And he says, Melinda, he said, if you had told me all those years ago in the 60s that gay marriage would be legal today, I would have told you, and this is a quote, you were full of shit. <laughs> wow. He said, and that's what gives me hope. In my lifetime, this is what I saw. And I see what I see in my lifetime, which is we've gone the things that you and I just talked about, I couldn't talk about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We w- it was only when we would get together for wine that the women would whisper, that happened to you too? That happened to you too? You too? Mm-hmm. Like that, the fact that, you know, the millennials are like, we are going to talk about this. We are yeah. going to put it out there. It's a relief. So, yes. yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's a part of me that feels old and cynical and feels like it's not happening fast enough. But if I stop and think like Tom does and look at the scope of what's happened over the last 20 years, I think, yeah, progress can happen. We just keep pushing on it. We got to. We got to keep talking about it, keep pushing on it. So what do you think? How do you think social media either helps it or hurts it as far as making progress? I mean, it's got, it's a dub like all things, like all tools. It's always in how you use it. Yeah. I mean, you have the Arab Spring and the Me Too movement and Oscar's so white and the people that have been brought to justice, you know, the cops that, and, and uh, everything that happened with Black Lives Matter movement and bringing awareness to, to issues affecting marginalized people. I mean, it's, that's an astonishing thing. When you think about it, it's sort of amazing how fast it happened. However, Humans don't change. We are millennia of buggy wetware in our minds. And it is not a simple thing to change those those cognitive, and I say cognitive biases now, right? The tribalism that is sort of inherent in all of us because we lived in tribes for millennia. We have a basically a hard limit to the number of people we can know that's somewhere around 50 people. Like it's a cognitive hard limit. And for now, until we evolve as a species. And so there are there are there are things that are holding us back. And I think the more we understand, I think those things are being exploited. I think cognitive bias is being exploited by the tech companies and certainly yeah. by bad actors, geopolitical bad actors. Twitter um, is proof. Yeah. A Twitter, Facebook. I mean, I've been talking about this issue since 2015. And I've been talking to people online that I didn't know since hmm, the early 90s. So I've had a lot of time talking to human beings online. So I could tell pretty quickly when when the what when the quote unquote people I was talking to were not people, or they were they were actors. If that makes any sense, I'm not going to yeah. say everybody was a bot. But if you look at the quality of Chat GPT that's been released to the public, and then you ask yourself, well, what is Russia sitting on? What is North Korea sitting on? What is Iran sitting on? What is you know? So. Is it, you know, whether it was bot accounts, whether it was, we know that the Russians paid or the Russian government paid, you know, hundreds of people to sit in rooms and pretend to be Americans, most notably Black Americans and older Americans, and to to pretend to be them. And so it has, we by not acknowledging the downside, we put ourselves at risk. And probably my single biggest frustration with my government there are many, but the single biggest one is that it has not educated its people about what's happening. So everybody's at risk. It's like there's a danger out there. There's a mountain lion on the loose, and we're not going to tell anybody. We're, we're definitely just gonna... being reactive with, yeah. the, with the whole technology thing. I mean, you still, if you look at the folks testifying and or when they forced Mark Zuckerberg to go up there, they were just like, now, how do you do the Facebook on the LinkedIn? And it was just yeah. like mixing the words up. You know, I think that's another thing, though, too, is our, a lot of folks in our government are are of a certain age and they're not interested in really learning about this stuff, really being involved in policy to help with it. And I'm not even sure if they understand it enough to compose policy. So maybe it's good if they don't. But, yeah, I think that we need a better mix of of diversity in our government. And we need to be teaching. I mean, I, maybe I'm hoping what I'm seeing with chat GPT is a really good dialogue in the education community about it's not as simple as banning it. Let's teach kids how to identify it and work with it and use it. I wish we had done that with social media. Yes. And I don't think it's too late. I think that that's something that because I, I don't believe social media is going anywhere. Uh, <laughs> no, me neither. It's not too late. It's something that they should be teaching kids. I remember I homeschooled my kids for a few years and one of the curriculum modules 
was on online safety. It was an actual a class that they, they had to take for a semester. And you have to take it every year when you do this online class. And I thought the, the curriculum was very good around those topics. But it would be great if they added in components about social media, not just, you know, stranger danger, basically online, cyberbullying, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But really dig into those specific aspects of using social media. Well stated. It goes it goes together. I mean, if you ask the people that think about these things, like what is going to be needed in the future, mm -hmm. they always use the phrase curiosity and critical thinking. So yes, we all have to learn our multiplication tables and you know whether or not how to use the, the Oxford comma, but we also need to be teaching things like curiosity and critical thinking. Is this, is this person I'm interacting with real? What is their agenda? Why are they saying these things? I don't believe people are as cruel as they seem online. I think some people are, of course, but I wonder how much of it is being seeded by people with a, an agenda. And it, having that sort of critical lens doesn't mean I never get triggered, but I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. And I, especially after I watched Monica Lewinsky's documentary on shame, which I recommend to everybody. It is Wait, not about. Is that on Hulu? Where is it? I think it's on Netflix or HBO Max. So good because she, it's not just about her, right? She would, she argues in the beginning that she was patient zero for online shaming. And I think she's, that she's got a legitimate claim. She, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the papers, right, were released to the internet and she was harassed and all the stuff. And, but, but well, the documentary is not about her. She's, she just says, this is kind of why I got interested in the topic. And she interviews not only people who were public, famously publicly shamed, but sort of tells you the true story. And I, as I said at the time I watched it, I was like, look, I can tell you from experience, there's nothing more fun than shaming people on the Internet. Oh, my God. You get to feel like <laughs> a good person. You get to feel like you actually did something. It's wow. dopamine all over the place. But then they interviewed these black women activists, frankly, who said, look, we tried this in the 60s and it didn't work. Shaming people does not did not help our cause. And it really made me pull back and go, OK. And then then there, th there was a point, too, where they were calculating some one of the commenters said it is it is as though we were all unpaid shame interns for Google. Oh. And that really set me back on my heels. Like, how much time am I spending online and to what purpose? How does it align with my values? And is it actually accomplishing anything? Right. What, what is the impact? And is that your intention, right? Mm -hmm. Is it to have that impact? And is that really being the result? You know, when it comes to... That's really a tough one because some people say that when they engage in dialogue, not necessarily shaming, right? But mm -hmm. when they engage in that dialogue, it does help change their perspective on things with time. Um, <laughs> so I guess, does kindness help? Is it, is it the delivery of it? Is it just Check out having the conversation? Check out Monica Guzman's book. I never thought of it that way. I, and when I started asking these questions publicly, several people pointed to me toward Monica's book. That that whole group is doing some really interesting things. And it's all about, this is political, but it's about bringing people from different political views together to reduce the temperature and have more thoughtful conversations. It's I'm really interested. The book was fascinating. And actually, the topics, the tips and things that they give are actually useful for any kind of conflict in your life, working with people that you disagree with fundamentally. But the upshot of the matter is that like the TLDR of that book is the goal of such conversations is not to change people's minds, but to get them to go, huh, I never thought of it that way. And that's Great. that seed that you plant that changes people's minds. What was I accomplishing on Twitter by just, you know, spouting right. things? To a certain it's degree, yes, I needed people need to know where I stand, but past that, if it if it in any way is interfering with actually getting something done to make the world a better place, it is not useful mm -hmm. to me. It's for me personally. I, yeah. I I make no comment on how other people spend their time, and because that's I don't have control over that anyway. So, right. but for me, I, I it made me really think, and I it made me wonder to for a lot of my white liberal friends, like how much of what we do online is helping, and how much of it's just talk. A lot of folks will only have, you know, outrage online, but in real life, they're they're still just following the status quo and being a part of the problem, yep. not the solution. It's, it's literally just all, all talk for a lot of people, even though it may make them feel better. 
sometimes it's more it's causing more harm. Yeah, because you make promises you can't keep for sure. Yeah. When you mentioned that, um, you know, that's your own personal mantra on how you're going to use your platform or in your engagement online. I think everyone should should have something like that. The tagline on my Twitter says too cool to argue with anyone on social media. And it has the emoji with sunglasses. And I, <laughs> I stand by that. Number one, as an introvert, I don't have the energy or the effort or the desire to engage with anyone that I don't have to engage with. Like that's just typically where we are. And so to give that kind of energy to a stranger, it's just not in my DNA. But what you're saying is some people will actually try to evoke those kind of emotions out of you online. And when I see it, I just I just laugh. And, and I hope that people don't fall into the trap, especially when we have a lot of, you know, political things happening in our in our country. Sometimes people just want to bait, bait you in and see how they can get you all riled up. And to make you, I mean, not to go full tinfoil hat, but one of the purposes of the online disinformation campaigns is to make you give up. Oh, good point. It's to make you tired so that you do not fight and argue, mm-hmm. right? You, you start to think the world is hopeless. Everybody sucks. Why bother voting? Why bother changing? And I, that for me, that's, I don't want to play into that. I do think as a person of, you know, with some privilege that I have a responsibility to at least voice what I believe so that I can make space, hopefully make air cover and make, you know, make it safe for everybody. But past that point, sort of past a sort of basic stance, it's, I really feel like the question is, what am I doing? What am I doing? Literally, what impact have I had? And, and that, that documentary really forced a hard reckoning for me about what am I doing here, really? And it's, I didn't like the answer to the question. That self-reflection and self-awareness is so important. I was just talking about this yesterday to someone else. A lot of people don't want to have that kind of self-reflection. And even if they do, they never see any fault with themselves. And I think a lot of that has to do with ego. Oh, um, yeah. We're all vulnerable. We're all yeah. hurting, hurting mm-hmm. human beings. And it's yeah. painful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that book you mentioned, I never thought of it that way. I'm going to put it in the show notes so people can link to it. Uh, I'm actually going to buy it myself. I put it on my coffee table, believe it or not. It's because I want everybody who comes into my home to ask me about it. It's such a profound book because it's not just like, oh, wine, wine, wine. We have a problem. Yes, we're divided. And she spends about a third of the book talking about why. Some things that are really shocking, actually. Surprising, mm-hmm. surprising to me. But the rest of the book is like, okay, now what? How do we actually have these conversations? How do we bridge the divide with people we fundamentally disagree with? How and, and do it in a productive way? How do we actually change people's minds? And by the way, as a marketer, I find that incredibly helpful. Because ultimately, marketing is is benign propaganda. It's about changing people's minds. Wow, marketing is benign propaganda. I love that phrase. It's what it is. I mean, isn't it? It's it's all purpose is to get you to do something. To influence you. Yeah. Into doing something. Mm -hmm. So as an entrepreneur, you actually have a, well, you were a CMO first, right? Yeah, I was a head of marketing and not at some of the biggest companies, but yeah, I held the role of VP of marketing, VP of product. Yeah. And then you, when you move from there career-wise, you at some point crossed the bridge over into entrepreneurship. What brought you there? A deep-seated frustration with all the workplaces I had worked in. You reach a point where you're watching people who are no smarter than you, no more qualified than you, making a lot more money than you. And you think, it just, well, you're like, well, if that clown can do it, I can do it too. So, you know, maybe a little late that I came to that, to that decision. And it hasn't been easy. I can't say that entrepreneurship is easier. It's tougher in many ways. But I, I learned that I like to control my own I'm necessarily into controlling other people. I'm not an entrepreneur because I want to have power over people. I'm an entrepreneur because I want to control my own life. Right. I want to decide. There were days I'd finish my work early and wonder, why can't I leave the office? If I'm done, I'm done. There are going to be days I'm going to be here long hours. What's the problem? And as a neurodiverse person, workplaces, particularly open cubicle environments, were not productive for me. They were isolating. They created burnout made it hard for me to do my best work. And so ultimately it started out as a desire never to have a quote unquote real job ever again. And it grew from there. 
company that I I am the head of now, Fiddlehead, actually started out as a company called Timeshare CMO. And I in those days I used to joke that it was like coming out of a bad relationship. I didn't want to get married again because it was a bad relationship and I just wasn't ready. And so I thought it was a good idea to basically portfolio approach my time and work with a bunch of different companies because I didn't think start very early stage startups needed right. all of that, all of what I had like to give. Fractional CMO. Yeah, I think I was one of the first. I think I I think Timeshare CMO may have been among the first of the fractional CMO companies. And uh, for various reasons, our clients just took us into the agency world. You know, they you started doing strategy work and then they wanted content marketing or influencer marketing or paid search and all that stuff. And the, so they trust you. So they want you to provide the other services. But it started out as a fractional CMO. I'm a member of a group called the Agency Management Institute, and they talk about the accidental founder, accidental agency owner. And that was me. I didn't set out to own an agency. And I, I set out to, you know, just be an entrepreneur and build something. And this is where the market the market took us. And so we grew with it. And then over the last year, we have changed. We have pivoted. I went through a health crisis I, that made it hard for me to focus on the business in the same way. Plus, I see I saw something coming over a year ago, whether it was the economy, inflation, automation. I just felt it I could feel it in my bones in a way I couldn't describe. Everything pointed towards a major change. And I worried about our future. And so over time, it made sense to sort of naturally let people sort of leave and encourage them to find new work, you know, kind of transition things slowly. And so now we're kind of at a point where I'm thinking about, okay, where are we going? Because what I did not want to do was what has happened to me in companies other people have run, which is run into the wall and then have to lay everybody off. Right. That it was a most unpleasant experience. And I really hope to never go through that again. I'm not trying to say that it's harder than the people who are actually laid off. But I want you to know, as someone who's been on both sides of that conversation, if you are in, if you have any sense of humanity whatsoever, it is brutal. I promise you that the people who laid you off most likely are not sociopaths. Maybe the people who made the decision at the top are, but the person who told you was not a sociopath, most likely, and they suffer too. People that are left behind suffer too. And I really, I think that's a failure of leadership and management when you get to that point. You've done something wrong if you have to lay people off like that. So I really steadfastly tried to avoid it. And I'm fairly proud that but for, by and large, for the most part, it was a smooth, it was a smooth wind down. Enabled me to focus on my health for a few months. And now as I come out of it, I'm thinking hard about what do I want to do next? Where do I want to be next? And so I'm lucky to have built something that gives me that opportunity for a short while. So what are you defining for your next steps? That is TBD, but there are two several areas that I'm particularly interested in. One is I have really enjoyed coaching CMOs uh, about how to be successful and how to help keep their jobs. I think it's natural in the CMO role, the head of marketing role, to overpromise and underdeliver, and helping set realistic expectations and training their coworkers and colleagues about the value of marketing so that they can be there as long as they want to and are able to because the business will benefit the longer the CMO is in the in the seat. Less than two years, average tenure is now? That's right. And it's dropped. It used to be well over three years. It's been dropping steadily. And I believe that that companies don't switch CMOs when things are good mm-hmm. and there are problems. And so every CMO comes in going, well, I can fix that. I'm a smart person. We're opt- marketers are optimistic by in, by nature. And we often CEOs don't know what they want. They don't understand the function. I really like working with folks that have been in there are in either in the seat for the first time or are in a new seat and want to sort of start from the beginning to think about how to get it right. The other sort of vector I'm really interested in is privacy. I, I've been an ethical marketer my whole life. So I believe that ethics around how data is used, whether that's thinking in cohorts, whether it's the, the presentation of that data in a sound way, areas around sort of the ethical use of data. And thirdly, I'm really spending some time now thinking about where the puck is going mm-hmm. uh, with regards to automation, AI. I, chat GPT, as I was telling you before the call, has caught a lot of us by surprise. Not so much that, oh, wow, we're being automated, but just how good it was. I, yeah. I think most of us thought that that level of quality was at least a year or two away, and it surprised the hell out of everybody. I'm not sure why, because I have literally been using Jasper for two years. And, <laughs> See? and I was nobody was listening people, to you and they should. No, I, I, I literally would post about it. I would tell people about it. And so, again, it goes back to as well, the power of branding and having that marketing machine behind you. People really didn't even know what Jasper was. 
All these years I've been talking about it. Soon as G G uh, Chat GPT came out, everyone knew about it and was using it. But they had a full marketing engine behind them. Most people had never even heard of Jasper. And still was just like, what are you talking about? You mean Chat GPT? I'm like, no, Jasper isn't free. So in order to get the experience that I'm talking about and access, <laughs> you know, because Chat GPT would be down a lot because the servers were full because it was free. Yeah, um, exactly. So, you know, so I'm like, no, we have been using it inside of my company for two years. All of the folks, all of my wow. all of my employees have been using it. But I, that's part of the work I do is I try to look into what's coming and what's happening and what folks are working on. Because I'm, you know, I'm involved in the startup scene. And when I say startup, I mean, literally the folks that are just trying to get from zero to a million or one million to five million. So I know what's boiling and what's coming up. And certain things I bet on and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be big. And other things it's like, oh, I'm not really sure. And then they get funded uh, and then they may go bust maybe five years later because it really didn't provide a value that people <laughs> needed. But Jasper, it was it was just that good two years ago. Wild. That's amazing. I mean, see, look at you. It's a wild feeling to be ahead of ahead of the curve, isn't it? It's a bit like Cassandra. You're like, I told you. When I saw ChatGPT in November, I said I had the same feeling I had when I saw the iPhone the first time. I said, it's not the same type of disruption, but it was the same hair stands up on the back of your neck going, this changes everything. It was the feeling. I, I couldn't always see how, but I, knew, I instinctively knew the change was coming. And it, and it was, you know, it capped off from a year of watching it from a financial standpoint, knowing I knew the layoffs were coming. I think I may have been tweeting about them in January of 2022 going, it's coming. My only question was whether it was going to happen before or after the election. Oh. And it didn't. So it just didn't. That was the only thing. And everything I was hearing on the ground here was that it was coming. And so I know that feeling of like, this thing is coming. <laughs> and, and I don't know how to tell you all, but like, yeah. this guy is falling. And then, but then sometimes I've been wrong. So then you wonder like, well, you know, sometimes you're, it's almost in Silicon Valley, I can't figure out whether it's worse to be early or late. Either There's no advantage to either one. No. And that's just how it is in the startup world overall. And that's why we often say that the success of a startup is based upon luck, right? We say you use mm -hmm. the term luck and then we'll say, well, luck really means timing. Yep. And you can, that's not something you can you can guarantee like as far as you know you getting out there and being at the right place at the right time with the right you know messaging and product and all that and so that's why we call it luck but i mean luck equal timing and you just don't know but i'm glad that people still try and be like hey i don't know if this is the right time it feels like the right time to me and you know just try it anyways because that's how we're able to get innovations like chat and jasper and all the other stuff that's coming down the line yep Exactly. And it's, and you keep going. I mean, just kind of like the other things we talked about, I think the people that are successful here are the people that just keep going. Yep. And they, they persevere. And I think about the WhatsApp guys, you know, who were on government assistance and just hanging away year after year after year after year. And it, it, that's, that's ultimately not every story is like that, but there are enough of them that give me, and it, and it makes me happy as a person who sort of is a nerd about tech, like, I, for a while, I've been like, isn't there anything new? I mean, yes, yeah, solar. No, not Bitcoin. That's not really interesting to me. But seeing this gets me excited. Like, this is a step function. And it's fantastic. Like, I, it gets me excited about being in tech all over again. It's the next yeah. thing, big thing. We, we've needed it because I feel like we haven't had anything in a long time. That's, that's like this. It's transformational. And it's very few things where it's just like, wow, you feel that way about it. So... Folks may say that who aren't in the tech space, but for people who are in the tech space, like you and I, to be like, oh, pay attention, guys, <laughs> pay attention, because if it if it's able to take our breath away, then it's, it's coming. It's, it's, oh, yeah. And it's transformative. To, to I used to drag people into the Apple store and going, come with me. You need to see this. <laughs> like, it's like that. I love it. You know, we we kind of we wound around the road, came back up and went back down. And I could literally sit here and talk to you for like hours because you have so much to share, so many interesting perspectives. I don't want to give it all away in this episode. I want people to be able to connect with you and follow you and learn on their own. So 
I want you to share the best way people can follow you online or get in touch with you. Thank you. What a great what a great host you are. I need to adopt this in my own podcasting. Speaking of my own podcast, I have a, a podcast called Staying Alive in Tech, and it's stayingaliveintech.com. And because I live here in the Valley and I've gotten to know, as I said, I know the people who know the people. And I, I thought, why am I the only one who gets to hear these stories? Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to put their stories out there for everybody to hear around the world. You don't have to live in Silicon Valley to, to learn from some of these folks and learn what it's like. And so I say that we're the only long form oral history of Silicon Valley. So the interviews are long. So thank you in advance for your patience, because some of them are stretched well over to an hour. But it, I think it's instructive, as you probably see, Monique, asking people where they come from and how they got there, especially my generation and the generation before mine. You didn't major in computer science That's when you right. worked in tech because it didn't exist. And so most of us were career switchers. And it it lends a, a very interesting flavor to the work people do. And it shows you all the different ways you can be successful in tech. As you, as you figured out, you can find a niche here. You don't have to be Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg to have a career and find really satisfying and meaningful work. So I enjoy telling their stories. And LinkedIn is where I'm doing a lot of my professional sort of, you know, social media these days. So you'll find me there. I have a Twitter feed. It's spicy. Somebody tried this with spicy. I'm going to go with spicy. <laughs> spicy. It's spicy. Maybe that's what I should put in my, you know, you have the the sunglasses emoji. I should put the hot pepper emoji. Yes. (laughs) In my my bio. But uh, those, and of course, my company, Fiddlehead, you know, watch this space. Right now, we're we're kind of moving into some different things. If you're new in your CMO job and you want to talk a little bit about how to get off on the right foot, give me a shout. We'll we'll have a conversation and, and get you started. So. It's really kind of you to have me on. It's it's a delight. I'm glad we got a chance to connect this way. I've been following you as well. And I just think you're sharp and practical. So many people are out there giving advice and it's so high level, you can't take action from it. And you're no BS like me. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com. Let's take a moment to thank our biggest sponsor of this podcast, TPM Focus, a strategy and execution consulting firm focused on generating revenue and finding product market fit for startups and small to medium sized companies that are launching a new innovation or entering a new market. In a nutshell, if you're launching a new innovation or into a new market, we'll align your technology, marketing, sales, and customer success with your financial goals to ensure your company makes money while finding and solidifying your place in the market. Head over to tpmfocus.com to see testimonials and reach out if you'd like to work with us.